right. Hey, you guys, go ahead and make your way back to the, your seats. Um, apologize to cut the conversation short. I know it's so great. So uh, just push pause on that and uh, wrap up your conversations later. If you're a guy and you didn't get to sign up yet, feel free to just... There we are. Uh, if you're a guy and you want to go to the guys' retreat, men's retreat, you get, didn't get a chance to, feel, feel free to pull out your phones. Go ahead and do that now so you don't forget. You're going to forget, right? You can go home, take a nap. You're going to forget. So you can go ahead and do that now. I'll allow it. Um, so, hey, welcome to Providence Road. I invite you to turn with me on this Youth Pastor Sunday to uh, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Um, <laughs> uh, while you're turning there, allow me to introduce myself again. <laughs> My name is Jay Freimeyer. Uh, I am the youth pastor here, among other things, uh, deacon and staff member, and I don't know how to explain myself, but I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm glad to be preaching this morning. Um, I'm excited to, to have this opportunity. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that all of you are here. There are a number of places you could be this morning, and yet you're with us. And so that is uh, good for us. You just want me to keep going? Okay, I'll keep going. Uh, so if you've been with us the past few weeks, should I scoot back, or does that matter? I'm good? Okay. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And as you can tell, we are not going to be there this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians. Um, but we're going to be asking a similar question that we've been asking as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And the question that we've been asking is, what leads to human flourishing? So when we did our introduction to that series a little over a month ago, we explored the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is giving us a blueprint for what it looks like to flourish as human beings. And so this morning, again, I'm going to take a slight twist off of that, and I'm going to ask, what does it look like for fathers to flourish? And then in turn, what does it look like for fathers to lead their children to also flourish? So before we, we get started on that, I want to say that I realize today's Father's Day, and not all of you are fathers. Not all of you are men and can be fathers. And so I realize that speaking to fathers on Father's Day, uh, we could potentially alienate a large portion of the room. And so in part, that's true. Ephesians 6.4 is a straightforward command to fathers on what to do and not to do on how to be a good, godly father. Uh, but on the other hand, this morning, you're going to hear over and over um, how much your heavenly father loves those of us who are in Jesus Christ and the great measures that he went to to secure your salvation in Jesus. And so it's my hope this morning that you hear this sermon uh, in one of those two lenses, all right? So women and non-fathers do not check out on me, all right? So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 6.4. It's up here on the screens if you don't have your Bibles open as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word and how it shows us um, who you are. It reveals to us how humans can know the God of creation, but also it tells us how to live in the day-to-day. 
and one of those ways in which it shows us how to live is it shows fathers how to be good, godly examples in the home to their children. So we thank you for your word this morning. Would you illuminate hearts this morning? Send your spirit here to show us your truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, being a dad can be hard work, right? Uh, Any amens from the dads in the room? Yeah? We don't always get it right. And so in preparation for this morning, I, I thought of several dad fails that I've had over the past five and a half years, which is how long that I've been a dad. And one of those came to mind pretty quickly. Um, it was when Henry was in the just learned how to walk stage. So he's after a year old. And it was a day that uh, he and I were spending together alone and he's kind of stumbling around, you know. I, I had the day off, but Brooke was uh, at work at the doctor's office. So he's like stumbling around all over the place, you know, bumping around, you know, how they do. And uh, I thought we had a great day. Uh, it was fun. And then Brooke gets home and uh, in a panic asked, how did Henry chip his front tooth? To which I responded, what do you mean? And not like, what do you mean? Like, what does your question mean? Because that's a really dumb question. I know what the words you're saying mean. I was really asking, Henry didn't chip his front tooth. What are you talking about? I've been here all day. That did not happen. And so she repeated her question. As she did so, I'm like racing through the memory of the day in my mind, thinking, did Henry even cry? Like, what, where, where have I been? Did he like wander down the street somewhere and I didn't know it? I'm like panicking. And sure enough, I could think of no such instance um, and so even now, I don't, I don't know if I should um, feel proud that Henry didn't cry or feel ashamed that I don't know that it happened. Um, but here we are, years later, four-ish years later, and Henry still, sure enough, has that chip on his front middle tooth, and I've got this reminder that this happened under my care, and I have no idea that it happened. I don't know if he swallowed it, if it's still at our old house, no idea. But it happened because he's missing part of his tooth. You can see it this morning if you'd like. Now, I'm sure that all of you dads out there have stories to top this one, right? If we spent all afternoon together, we could go back and forth on these dad fails and hopefully laugh our way through most of them. Uh, now, in the moment, they're pretty terrifying, right? But, but now we can look back and laugh on them. Uh, and thankfully, being a dad is more than the sum total of our successes and failures in fatherhood, right? It's more than that. And we also, to go a step further, we don't have to be confused about what God is asking us, asking of us as fathers. In Ephesians 6, 4, we are given a very straightforward command of what to do and not to do as fathers. So before we, we jump into that, I'm gonna catch us up to speed just briefly and see where we are at in the book of Ephesians. So Paul is writing this book in, uh, to, to this church in Ephesus, and he writes it in two major sections. So the first section is, is the first three chapters, and it's primarily doctrinal in nature. It's rich in theology, it's heavy in doctrine. And then the last three chapters, uh, chapters four through six, are more on just practical living. How do we live as believers in the world? So writing to Christians, he begins his book in chapter one with how he's thankful for them and how he's praying for them. Ephesians 2, many of you are familiar with this chapter. He reminds them of who they were uh, before Christ saved them and who they are uh, in him now that he has saved them. He calls them dead, lifeless people. 
They were children of wrath with no hope. They lived however they wanted and did whatever their flesh told them would be satisfying. But verse 4 of chapter 2, God being rich in mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. And now that we've been saved in Christ, now that they've been saved in Christ, they're to walk in the good works that were prepared before them. Verse 10, long before they knew who Christ was. In chapter 3, he explains to the church his very purpose um, in being there, which is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to take the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, the non-Jews throughout the world. And then he writes out how he prays for this people in Ephesus. And I want to read this section because I think it's important for what Paul's doing and how it transitions into this next section. And so, again, it'll be up here, but if you have your Bibles, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. This is, again, Paul praying for believers uh, in Ephesus. For this very reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So again, in a word, if I could sum up what Paul is praying over the Ephesian church right now, it's that God would cause them to flourish. Okay, let's just stay with the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, that he would cause them to flourish. And it almost seems that Paul could have ended his letter here. I mean, there's a sh- sharp transition. He even says, amen. We know this today. If we're singing songs and someone says amen after a prayer, you sit down. If you're sitting and I say amen, you're like, why are we still sitting? It feels like a natural transition here. However, if he would have stopped here, he would have stopped short of the practical living that's required of us every single day. And so that's why he's in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, therefore, now anytime we see that, we must ask What therefore is therefore? Given everything that he's just mentioned in chapters 1 through 3, because of all that, because of this rich doctrine, because of what Jesus has done for you, because of the salvation he secured for you, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So again, the final three chapters, grounded in the first three, in the new life they found in Jesus, making sure that their salvation is a gift from God alone. They couldn't have earned this favor from God in their life on their own merit. Christ entered the world, took their sin to the grave, that they might be reconciled to God. Because of this truth, He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Now, I want to make two comments on this verse, and then we're going to get to uh, fathers. First, urges. Paul is not gently suggesting that this is a good idea on how they ought to live. He is pleading and he's begging with the church to live in this way. 
and this word worthy. Implied here is that he's looking at, um, think of like scales. And on these scales, he's comparing their profession of faith in Christ, the calling to which they've been called, and the practice of faith in Christ. So he's saying you ought to live in a way that your life measures up to the calling to which you've been called. Okay, does that make sense? You're tracking with me? To make this connection more directly to fathers, you were dead in your sin. You were a child of wrath. You did whatever you wanted, kind of like your small children. You just lived however, like my son here in a few minutes when he's let free. You lived however you wanted. And because of his mercy for you, dads in this room, you have been made alive with Jesus. It's only by grace through faith. May you be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Therefore, fathers, I'm taking some liberties here, I know, but fathers, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. So how do we do that? Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we're gonna look at this verse in three sections. First, uh, the appeal to fathers, the address to fathers. Second, do not provoke the negative command. Do not provoke your children to anger. And then third, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we'll compare this some to Colossians 3.21, which is very similar. So first, fathers. Because Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus, he's writing to people who have experienced the fatherhood of God. So what does that look like? In the scriptures, we, we see terms like orphans or aliens or strangers. That's who they were before Jesus. They have been brought near. They've been adopted into the family of God because of Christ. There's something deeply satisfying in knowing that, as Tim Keller writes, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted by the Father in Jesus than we ever dared hope. It's solely by the grace of God that the very fathers he's about to instruct regarding the upbringing of their kids, it's only by grace that they've first experienced the fatherhood of God and, he, and they've received love and patience and hope and safety and encouragement, all of these things from their heavenly father first. And it's not as if our heavenly father is stingy with these things, right? Right? The scriptures show us that he's incredibly open-handed with giving us good gifts, good gifts. He's generous and he's liberal in extending to us love and hope and encouragement in the spirit and safety and protection. So moving forward, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What does it look like to provoke your children to anger? Provoke could also mean exasperate, it can mean irritate, think like constantly poke in the eye or something, like what is the most irritating thing to you? Like to just poke them, to provoke them to anger. Not like you're literally doing that, but I, I think you understand, right? So for the crowd reading this letter, this would have been extremely countercultural because men in the home had complete control. They exercised unlimited power over their children and that often led to excessive punishment. One commentator I read argues that a father's love for his children would have been hard to imagine in the broader culture in Ephesus and in this region. 
So Paul's command to not provoke their children to anger is significantly raising the bar of fatherhood for them in a way that honors both God and it honors their children. So I, I want to explore this idea of God fathering us open-handedly. If this is the posture we want to have, if he's abundantly offering us encouragement and peace and hope and safety, then I want to present to you two ditches to avoid um, from this picture. And so I, I've slightly modified this from a pastor out of Dallas. His name is Jamin Roller. Um, he, he's the person that I heard this from. And the first ditch I want to put before you, if, if open-handed father is what we're pursuing, then the first ditch is closed-handed dad or closed-fisted dad. So this dad seeks to control his kids. He's often on a fault-finding mission, and as a result, he makes it impossible for his kids to please him. The goals set by closed-fisted dad are unreasonable, and his kids know it. Closed-fisted dad rarely shows affection and is always critiquing, causing his kids to not only ask if daddy loves them, but also if daddy even likes them. Closed-fisted dad does not lead the home. He seeks to control the home. He does not represent God in the home. He wants to be God. He is not safe. And if God isn't tender, loving, and gentle, then how could God be any of those things? This dad is leading his kids into anger and hopelessness. Now, if this is your tendency as a dad or even as a mom, let me share this with you from Jen Wilkin, who is a, a Bible teacher and an author. She says this, the goal in discipline is not that you would have control over your kids. It's that they would. Now, I'm going to say that again because when I heard this on the podcast, I had to rewind multiple times to understand what she was saying. The goal in discipline is not that you would have control over your kids. It's that they would. See, we are raising kids to become responsible people, hopefully, right, someday, that they would exhibit self-control over themselves. And the irony is, you can't control them into that. Does that make sense? That, that was for free. So, closed-fisted dad. The other ditch is hands-in-the-air dad. Is that, you, could, you could say arms-crossed dad, whatever. Uh, hands-in-the-air dad isn't looking for control, he's looking for comfort. Hands in the air dad is constantly distracted by and interested in other things, basically everything other than what is in the home. So status at work, making more money, sports, hobbies, you name it. Hands in the air dad prefers to abdicate his responsibilities to others. So he makes the money, sure, but mom feeds the kids and makes sure they, their clothes are clean. Teachers make sure the kids are educated. Uh, coaches make sure the kids are disciplined. And of course, church makes sure the kids are morally good human beings. Dad gets to save all of his energy and attention for the things he really cares about. If dad is disinterested in me, how could God find me lovable? This dad also is leading his kids into anger and hopelessness. So both of these ditches result in our kids becoming discouraged, losing heart, and feeling hopeless, which is what Paul says again in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they be, become discouraged or lest they lose heart or lest they become hopeless. So how do we father in such a way that causes them to not be discouraged? Ephesians 6.4. We bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. 
So repentance is not merely stopping doing something bad, but it's also turning to something that honors the Lord. It's, it's removing a sinful behavior in our life and turning to the Lord. So we see this a few times in Ephesians, first in 428. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Again, in 518, this is just Ephesians. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And here in his exhortation of fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we've looked at the negative, don't provoke. Now we move to the positive. And so I'm going to take some liberties here with Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21. I'm going to mash them together. And I feel that I can do that for a few reasons. One, they sound almost the same. The wording is very similar. Two, it's written by the same author. And three, I believe that Ephesians and Colossians were written at almost the same time, at least within the same year, but they could have been written at, in the same month, Paul writing to Colossians and Ephesians. And so if Colossians, I'm doing this because if Colossians 3.21 is true, that provoking your children to anger causes them to lose heart and become hopeless, then I believe the positive command in Ephesians 6.4 is what will produce hope in our kids. So what brings about hopefulness in our children is bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think we can sum up what Paul is, is saying here in one word. And that's discipleship. Are we discipling our kids? We are to display as fathers the open-handedness of our father to our kids, to teach them his word, to lovingly correct them when they wander. If you do this, you are not guaranteeing their salvation in Christ. We know that belongs to the Lord alone. But you are setting before them a hope that is greater than anything this world can offer. This specific section of practical living in the home begins in Ephesians 5, when it says, like I just mentioned, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So in order to give our kids hope, we must be fathers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. The pastor I referenced earlier, Jamin Roller, he said it like this, you will give to your kids whatever you have filled your hands with. You will give to your kids whatever you fill your hands with, whatever you have gone to life with gone to for life. So dads, what have you gone to for life? What is in your hands? What gets dad's affection? What does dad love? Because your kids see it, don't they? Now I'm, I'm willing to bet if you're in one of these two ditches that I've just mentioned, or if you're like headed to one, or if you're prone to be in one, I believe that it's probably inadvertent. Now, what I mean is this. I doubt that you wake up every day thinking, I can't wait to crush the hope out of my kids, right? Like any, anyone, I mean, we can talk later, I guess. You're not going to raise your hand, but I doubt that's you. I doubt you're saying, I wish my kids would be hopeless, lifeless people. But I bet it looks more like this. The demands of the day press on you. Bills pile up. Maybe you're in debt. Maybe your family's schedule is just stretching you thin. Work responsibilities can come, uh, become extreme. Uh, maybe just the season of life you're in is just kicking you in the mouth, and it just life is just hard. Being a dad can be challenging. It can feel overwhelming. And so if that is you this morning, I want to say two things to you. First, and I want you to hear me. 
that God loves you for who you are right now, not some future version of you. Will you hear that? That God loves you right now in Jesus, not who you are going to become when your life is better. And so I don't know what's in your hands. I don't know what you're going to for life. I don't know what has all of your affection right now. I do know that if you're in Christ, that God loves you right now for who you are. And so maybe whatever else I'm about to say this morning, like you just need to stop there. Maybe you just need to leave and just think on that. That God loves you right now, period. Please hear that this morning. Second, if life is kicking you in the teeth and it's just hard right now, you're in one of these ditches, I'm gonna just plead with you to keep showing up. If, if it's hard, if it's tough, just keep showing up. As I was studying this last week, I came across this book. It's called The Boy Crisis, and it was released uh, this past year by two guys, uh, PhD guys that, I don't know if they'd call themselves like sociologists or psychologists or just activists, but their research is, is really important. So in this book, um, at the end of it, they give 55, um, they give a list of 55 uh, results of like, what are they, I think they call it dad deprivation in the home, like how our kids are affected by dad deprivation or uh, the positive results of a, a good father within the home. And so I'm just going to read a few of these. And this is just basic, like being a dad, being present within the home. So um, they say that from their studies, that adolescents with minimal or no father involvement account for 71% of high school dropouts. Around 90% of homeless and runaway youths are from fatherless homes. Among youths in prisons, 85% grew up in a fatherless home. They call prisons basically centers for dad-deprived young men. On the other hand, high dad involvement increases the likelihood of an infant's ability to trust, a child's ability to empathize with others as they age, and higher test scores in school. Dads, your presence in the home matters. Now, as Christian fathers, we want so much more than just these things, right? Like we want our kids to know and love the Lord. We want them to give their lives to him, but we don't want less, right? Like you don't want your kids being these statistics, right? And so part of it is just showing up and not giving up and being present, as you have time later this week to think back on this morning, whether it's by yourself or in your MCs, your fight clubs, here are a few things you can think back on, what I'm going to encourage you to do. Number one, know your heavenly father. How has God fathered you? What are the benefits that you have received as a result of the fatherhood of God? Number two, know yourself. Are you in one of these ditches or are you prone to, to be in one of these ditches or the other? Closed-fisted dad or hands-in-the-air dad? Do you seek to control or do you seek to abdicate your responsibilities and fight against those things? Share those things with someone you know in your fight club, your MC. Come clean about those things and fight against them. Number three, know your children. How do they respond to you? Every kid is different, right? How do your kids respond to you? Is daddy someone that they can run to in all circumstances, whether happy or glad or sad or they're mad? That's what we say in our home. Does daddy run to you 
or can not maybe you're running to them can can they run to daddy do they feel safe to run to daddy in all things in their joys or in their disappointments are you discipling your kids so before we end this morning i want to speak to a few other groups of people that i know are in this room so first single guys or young married guys um before i got married man i knew so much about marriage like i was so smart i was probably the smartest about marriage before i got married and then i got married and suddenly i didn't know as much stuff um and and to take it a step further uh man i knew so much about raising kids too before i was a dad right like I had no empathy for dads that I saw their kids running around, kind of like Henry's about to, like I mentioned. Uh, I had no empathy for dads that like, couldn't control their kids. Like, what do you, it, it's not that hard. <laughs> You're laughing. You, the parents in the room are laughing. And then I got married and realized how hard it can be at times when you throw two sinners into a covenant union and sort of say, well, figure it out. Um, and God gave me a strong-willed son, and I've been humbled every day since. <laughs> um, so I say all that to say to single dad or single guys, maybe young married guys, would you find a couple or a family in the church, and you be as involved in their life as they will let you? Like you go to family meals, you babysit their kids, you bathe them under a certain age. Let's not be weird. Uh, you put them to bed. Um, like you be involved and in 10 years you'll look back and you will not regret it okay you will not regret it single ladies in the room uh, I just want to say if you have any desire to be married to be married someday do not settle it is better for you to be single than to marry a man who will not lead your home and family someday the way that God has intended um just within the past like eight months, I have three friends from either college or seminary that I all knew from ministry, either serving in collegiate ministry or serving in seminary at a church with. And within the past eight or so months, all of them have left their wives with multiple young children because they were just out. For, for various reasons, they're just done. And I, I just want to say, that it is better that you be single than to experience that, okay? I could say more, but I will, I will leave it at that for now. Single moms, this is the hardest for me. Um, so I come from a broken home, and for a couple years I lived with my mom, um, me and my brother did, and um, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back I can see just how hard that was for her, how hard I made life on her and didn't even know it. Um, I want to say to you, uh, because of the fall of man and the entrance of sin in the world, your job as a mom is just so much harder than God intended it to be. It, it's just harder than it, it should have been before the fall. Um, whether your husband has left or he's passed away, whatever the circumstances, this is just not how God designed the family to be. And I hope that despite worldly odds being against you, that you are able to know and experience the love of God for both you and your kids. And they're not perfect here, but the best way for you to experience uh, the love of other believers in our church and help and support is in missional communities. Again, they're not perfect, 
but uh, that is the best place we have for you, for people to come alongside you and help uh, give you a break at times and watch your kids and raise your kids with you. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So the sadness, hurt, or even anger you may feel this morning can be completely consumed and overwhelmed by freedom and joy in Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't want to say that this is easy and I don't want to make this trivial because it's not, but it's possible. And this could also apply to, to those of you in the room who have maybe lost a dad this year or in the past few years and you're hurting from that. The freedom and joy that we find in Jesus can consume and overwhelm all of those things. It's not easy and it's not a trivial thing, but it can be done in him church, we have an obligation to serve the single moms among us and in our community. And I know that you know James 1.27, but I'm going to read it again anyways. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May we rise up and serve the orphan and widow among us. To those who grew up with good, godly fathers, Would you praise God this morning? You have been given such a gift from God. And if your dad is still alive, you call him today and you thank him and you buy him some Rusty's custard if he's in Norman. To those of you who didn't have that model in your home, again, as I've said, the heavenly father, your heavenly father loves you in a way that no earthly dad can. And yes, earthly dads are to give us a picture of what our heavenly dad is like. But when our earthly dads don't do that, there can be confusion on whether or not God does really love us. And I hope that today you hear that he does, that in Jesus, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He loves you, he knows you, he cares for you. To anyone who feels hurt or regret this morning, maybe you're in here this morning and you just feel like a failure as a father. Maybe it's been a hard week and it's just your season. Maybe your kids are all grown and there's bitterness or resentment between you and your kids. Or if if you're a kid, you and your dad. Maybe your father has hurt you and you don't know how to talk to him about it. Um, Let me say this. So last year, the city of Norman gave out free trees. That's a sharp turn, I know, sorry. I should have refined that. Uh, They gave out free trees and me and Brooke were like, sure, we'll take a free tree. So we went to this place, got this free tree. It's like three foot tall, they're dormant. They're They're not much. And I remember her mom, or her telling her mom about this tree, and I don't know what they thought it was, but they came in, and I think they laughed at us when they first saw it, like just puny little tree, like, oh, ha, 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 you know, I thought you were going to buy a more mature tree, whatever. Uh, So why am I talking about trees right now? Um, Because I'm a preacher, right? That's what we do, weird stuff. Um, I'm going somewhere. Do I wish that our previous homeowners had planted a big maple tree in our front yard 30 years ago? Absolutely. I could be reaping the benefits of that tree right now. But someday that little three-foot tree in our yard is going to have an expansive root system, and it's going to provide shade for about half the neighborhood because maple trees are massive. The best time to plant a tree, some of you may know this, was 30 years ago. Absolutely. The second best time to plant a tree is today. Okay? 
If you're living with pain or hurt or regret right now, what is keeping you there? Like, okay, I'm, maybe I'm trivializing that too, but you don't have to stay there. So this morning as you leave, if, if you need to repent about something, then repent. If you need to call up an estranged son or daughter or father and apologize, then no matter how hard that might be, go do that if you need to. If you need wisdom on how to proceed and you just wanna talk to someone, then come forward, come talk to someone after and be prayed with over that thing. So so we're gonna wrap up. I wanna finish with this. Uh, Last month, I attended the Celebration of Life service for Mike Kilgenfeld, and as did many of you. I saw many of your faces there. And I left that service feeling so motivated to become a better dad and a better husband as a result of his life. And I tried to think back. I don't think I had one conversation with him more than like just pleasantries, you know, hey, how's it going? Weather's nice, whatever. I don't remember having a lengthy conversation with him ever. But because of the stories that his son shared at his celebration of life service, I just left thinking, man, I want to be a better dad. And it was one story in in particular that Drew shared. Um, And I'm going to botch this, and if you were there, maybe you even know it better than me. But he shared this story. I think he took his dad's vehicle or his own vehicle out in the town. I don't think he was 16 yet. He comes back home, thought he was in the clear. And sure enough, his dad, dad knows all things. Kids, don't try to cross your dad's. Uh, the next morning, has this conversation with his dad, and his dad calls him on it. And he's, like, trembling. He's, like, freaking out, you know? Like, when you're caught in something, you're like, okay, what's going to happen? And what he remembered from that moment was not punitive discipline, and it was not unrighteous anger. Drew's recollection of his dad, from the broader picture of his life, but specifically even in that moment, what his, was that his dad wanted to win his heart. He wanted to win his heart. He didn't want mere obedience. He didn't want righteous rule following. He wanted his kids to love him. He wanted his kids to want to love him. He wanted to win their hearts. Now, fathers, is there any better picture of what the Heavenly Father wants from us than to win our hearts. God wants to win your hearts. So dads in the room, may we live in such a way that when our kids look back and recall all the moments from their childhood, they're gonna remember it all, right? The crazy stuff, the times when dad lost his mind, the times when dad was rolling around on the floor wrestling them, the times when dad read read the word of God with them. They're gonna remember those things, but in all of it, May they look back and think, man, dad just wanted to win my heart. So as we wrap up, dads, um, man, go take a nap today. You're going to take a nap probably, right? I hope you can take a nap. Um, Go watch some golf. Surely golf's on, right? I hate golf, but I like naps, so I like golf. Um, I mentioned Rusty's. I'm probably going to eat Rusty's. You should go eat some Rusty's custard too. It's great. More importantly, go and win the hearts of your kids. Bring them up in the Lord and lead them into a life of flourishing. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for um, everything we see in the scriptures about yourself and about Jesus that shows us how to do this. I think I would be wandering aimlessly and clueless about how to be a dad if I didn't have your word. And so I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the men in this room who take up this mantle with honor and, and they seek to live this out. And God, I pray for the men in this room who are struggling right now. I pray that you would put people in their life to help them out of it. And I also pray for the people in this room who are hurting. Would you send your spirit to encourage their hearts now and to uplift their very souls. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.